today from some minutia in Scripture to an essential in life. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So I I want to begin at a point that is truly trivial, and I mean trivial. You'll agree when I get to it in a moment. But then begin an immediate climb up the mountain toward not just relevance, but essence, the very core of how we understand what we're supposed to do and what we should care about and how we ought to live, and a few stops in between uh, that make clear where the differences lie, hopefully, uh, between those two things. And I think they all point in the, in the same direction. So to begin on the minutia end, uh, and this statement itself is not unimportant, uh, but, you know, the illustration that I'll give about it might be taken that way. So what I want to talk about first is the self-limitations of Scripture— that is, the, the, the limits Scripture puts on itself. And there are those. And this is sort of hard for us to acknowledge sometimes, and yet it's obvious and clearly the case. So as an example, and this would be true of any kind of discipline or domain, language, for instance, in general, has a problem when it comes to self-reference. When you start talking about this sentence that I'm speaking right now, self-reference creates the potential for some conundrums, for some paradoxes, uh, and yeah, really for some contradictions to come up. And so self-reference in this case, in Scripture, is in a couple of verses, a couple of passages uh, that I ran across when I was very young, when I was just reading through the Bible for the first times, you know, a few times, and uh, realized these passages said something that made me say, well, wow, if, if I'm going to believe the whole Bible, then I have to believe that too, and I have to believe it this way. And the way I was believing it, as I look back on it, was just wrong. And not just wrong, but misleading, not just about that particular passage, but as it pointed out the shallowness. And not, no, that's not right. It's not the shallowness It's just the error in my presumption about how I needed to read those particular passages. So here's the example. And it's it's the references in Scripture when it it will say something to this day. So, for instance, in Judges 15, you've got the story of Samson, and I won't retell the whole story, but he's been in a big fight, and now he's exhausted, and he's done the great deed, and now he feels like he's going to perish because he just needs something to drink. And so it says, he was very thirsty. This is in Judges 15. And he called upon Yahweh and he said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and then fall into the hands of the uncircumcised anyway? And God split open the hollow place that's at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. And we all love this part of the story. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. There's another passage that's just like that, uh, which describes the split in the house of Israel, right? So after Solomon, Rehoboam becomes king, there's a rebellion from Jeroboam that in response to Rehoboam's harshness. And when it describes that split and the reason it came, it goes on to say in 2 Chronicles 10, 19, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now, when when I was a teenager and I was reading this passage, and I was a young teenager, when I was reading this passage, I I thought 
well, I believe the Bible, and I believe the whole Bible, so it must be the case to this very day. Uh, the year 1970, whatever it was at the time, probably 1976 or 77 or something like that. And, you know, so as, I, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, who knew that it would endure that long? But that's what the Bible says. It says to this day, and it doesn't matter how many thousands of years forward this goes, it is still going to be true to that day whenever somebody picks up the Bible and reads it. Now, I didn't think through in my own mind what that would mean for when this scripture, which describes itself as eternal, would be in heaven and the earth would be completely different. And is the house of Israel still split? I didn't think about any of that. So while I was reading it as a teenager, the the fact is that I was reading it, it, and this is the shame of it, because I meant well by it. There's no great harm in the moment. And yet what I was reading it as was like this. I was reading it as a true version like, oh, well, this one just happens to be true, but it's a true version of a once upon a time in a faraway land kind of story. But in this story, it's once upon a time in a faraway land, there lived a boy who would kill lions and bears and giants and become a great king. That's, and it's not like I said, oh, it's not true. It's just a fantasy. But I read it as if it were a true fantasy, as if it were a myth but it happened to be true also. And I didn't realize that by reading it in the same way you would read a myth, but then just ascribing truth to it, I didn't realize that by turning off the filters I used when I read anything else, I mean, I was a debater back then, so a news story or anything else, and it didn't matter how great the journalist was or how authoritative the source was, I would still put on a filter and say, do I believe this or not? Does it comport with all the other things I read or not? I didn't realize that by turning off the filters I used when reading anything else, that I was making it impossible for Scripture's own bumper guards to hem me in. Because Scripture itself will tell us how we're supposed to read parts of it, how we're supposed to gauge how they apply to us and things like that. And a lot of that didn't change. And of course, some of that changed when I was younger and still studying and growing, becoming an adult. But a lot of it didn't change. A lot of that error of reading the Bible as if it's a once upon a time in a faraway land type story, but then saying, but I believe it. I believe it's true historically, and I affirm it historically. Even saying all of that, I'm still reading it the other way with that kind of filterless understanding. That didn't change until I visited Israel. And in visiting Israel, and this was, I mean, this was 2008. So I was, what, 45 years old or something like that when I, when, when I really understood what needed to change in my understanding of how meaningful and authoritative Scripture actually is. I realized in visiting Israel, of course, it's a real place. This is not in a faraway land. It's, oh, it's right over there across the lake there. And it has a real history where people who live now are descended from people who were alive then. And indeed, not just with a real history, but where real people live now. And, And let me just use that one to make the point a little more strongly. And with a little risk here because of all of the pain that's going on in the Middle East right now in the conflict between Israel and Hamas especially and with other uh, others who are surrounding Israel. And so when I say where real people live, I mean, for instance, not these people who are the caricature of Ishmael as the source of the Arabs and Muslims who were, in our caricature, destined to be evil because Abraham just wouldn't wait for the impossible to become possible with Sarah. And so, you know, we heard somebody say that line when we were younger. Well, Abraham, he couldn't wait, and so Hagar took took Sarah's place, and we've had wars over oil ever since, and it's the fault of that wicked Hagar and that terrible Ishmael. When that's not what Scripture says at all. It doesn't describe it that way at all, and it's a complete mischaracterization 
of where the actual people in the land came from. However, I will say this, even if you say, oh, well, all those, all those other people, they're of Ishmael, you know, that's who they are. And I'm not saying they don't attribute it to that. Here's what Genesis actually says about Ishmael. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, and this is when God is making the covenant with Abraham and he's establishing it and saying he's going to bless Isaac. And Abraham says, no, bless Ishmael, bless Ishmael. And and God says, I'm going to give you another son and I'm going to bless him. And Isaac's the one that I'm going to make the nations of. And Abraham says, oh, please bless Ishmael. And God says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly, and he will father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant I'm establishing with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. It's not a, oh, they're going to be evil and terrible. God's going to bless them abundantly, and he's going to be the ruler over great princes, and they're going to be a great nation too, and he's not cursing them. He's not making them the enemy. He's blessing them. On the other end, and, but, but, you know, we normally read it and we make a caricature out of it. And because it's sort of a myth to us, we apply it to the people who are in the land now. And we just say, oh, well, there's Isaac's people. And then there's Ishmael's people. And ah, it's shame they're still fighting, isn't it? But they're real people. They're not a caricature of mythological characters that came out of a story. Right now, the Jewish Israelis are real people. They are suffering for real right now because of what Hamas instigated. But at the same time, they are not. And this is a misunderstanding of who we should be praying for when we don't realize this. They're not pristine, sinless, haloed people living in the promised land. And just to make this point, because people really don't get this. They think, oh, uh, the people of Israel, the Jews in Israel, they're just, they wake up every morning and they they pray at sunrise and they pray at noon and sundown and they all uh, celebrate Passover together and they're just waiting for the coming of the Messiah and so on. Israel is so strongly pro-choice that right after Dobbs, right after the U.S. overturned the Roe v. Wade decision, right? that right after that, Israel actually relaxed their own very limited restrictions on abortion to begin with. They relaxed those restrictions that they had on abortion as a response to the U.S. action that made abortion less available for women. They did it with the pharmaceuticals and with regular abortions. So my my point is, this is, this is not a land where believers should be looking at Israel and going, oh, All the Jewish Israelis are perfect, but they don't need to be perfect. What we need to realize is that they're real people. They have jobs and bills that are due and loved ones, some that they've lost, failures and successes. They're they're people. And because they're people, not because they are a cartoon character from the way we sort of shallowly sometimes read scripture, the way I did at least, because they're real people, we have empathy for them and we care about what's going on with them. And so right now, in, the, in exactly the same way, the Palestinians are real people. They're not extinct peoples, by the way. They're not the Philistines. They're not the Canaanites. Neither are they demons or angels any more than the Israelis are demons or angels. They're just real people going through this conflict. I said that about the Palestinians in general, not talking about terrorists and all of that, who also are real people perpetrating real evil and who ought to be held genuinely accountable for what they did at the same time. Now, I'm bringing up those illustrations because some of the people most respond, and and I I wish this weren't the case, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say it. It is the case. This is just the way it is. I'm bringing up those illustrations about how we think about people living in the Middle East, people living in Israel in particular. I'm bringing up those illustrations because some of the people most responsible for the irresponsible way we think about the Middle East right now are those of us who are informed more by our 
mythological reading of Scripture, and I mean we don't read it genuinely enough as a book that's telling us the truth about things that happen, more by our mythological reading of Scripture than either by the reality that's on the ground in Israel and Palestine right now or by the actual message of the Scriptures that we read and and we care about. We care about those Scriptures, but we haven't really heard what they say. And so my point is to get us to open up here for a minute and say, not how do I read it in some simplistic sense is is misleading. It's not just simplistic, but in the sense that I would read a fiction, but then assign truth to it. How do I stop doing that and start reading this as a book about people who actually lived and then start applying it to myself and to the church, the early church and the current church? and to the way we ought to be living, that I assign it to myself in the way that would that would be pertinent, knowing that this is a book that actually describes what people did and how God dealt with them because of what they were doing and so on. So if you say to yourself, I don't understand what the limitations of Scripture have to do with this, or saying the Scripture has limitations has to do with it, I don't think it has any limitations. Let me use Jesus' words to illustrate what I mean because my choice of words may not be favorable to you. That's fine. I don't care that you use those words, that Scripture limits itself. I just want us to be able to read Scripture the way it's actually given to us. And for instance, when Jesus is speaking about Scripture, he defines certain limitations on the way we're supposed to read it. So the the one that's so obvious and glaring, and that's sort of the basis for what I wanted to talk about today, and actually related to, I think, the topic that's at the center of what I want to bring up in it today, uh, is Matthew 19, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in their question about divorce, remember? So, so Matthew 19 says it this way, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, and he always does this, he reshapes their question to be more relevant to what, he, what they actually need to learn in response to their question. And so he answered and he says, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You know, and I said, that, that, that answer is basically simple. He's saying, well, no, you shouldn't get a divorce. And then they say to him, but you know, the Old Testament says we can get a divorce. Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, and this is the, this is the big change in what's going on in this passage to make us realize just how specifically God needed to address the abuses that were happening in Israel and in the Middle East and everywhere else, probably, in the world, uh, in ancient times when he gave this law of divorce to them. So he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, what he, I know there are a bunch of different ways to read that passage once you hear what was going on in their culture, and if you just read the Old Testament passages about marriage and men and women, how they're related to each other, then you start to see this. And I'm going to read a couple of examples here in a second so you'll see what I'm talking about. What Jesus actually appears to be confronting in that statement is not just a new rule about how much stricter we need to be about divorce than we were before, and the way many of us apply it, which is, you know, something like, well, if you ever got a divorce and then you get married again, you're just living in sin because you shouldn't have gotten married again. And, you know, as if it has to do with remarriage. It's not about remarriage. It's about a violation against the spouse that you had. And in this case, it's a violation against the woman. The man who divorces his wife, except for this cause, and marries another, commits adultery. The shocking statement is that he's saying the man would be committing adultery simply because he's not being faithful to that wife. That is a confrontation 
with the cultural norm that was in the region and in that era that a wife, and this is something that started to change under Roman law, but in Jewish culture, it wasn't different, that a wife belonged to her husband, that she was his property in some way. Now, I'm not saying God ever favored that, and I'm not saying Scripture ever advocates for it, but it does describe it, and there's no way to get around it. There, there's, In fact, there's no denying that people, like, and this is the case of slavery that I'm giving, that people are spoken of as property in certain passages in the Old Testament. We can pretend those are not there, but there they are. You know, they're saying it. So Exodus 21, when a man strikes his slave, whether male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, then he'll be avenged. That means the avenger of blood can come after the person who killed his slave. So the brother or sister of the person who was owned, I'm putting that in air quotes, and was killed can come after the owner because they killed, you know, a human being. And thank heavens, you know, there's a recognition of the personhood of this uh, this one who was slain, right? But still, they were owned by that person. Now, how do I know that? Because it says, but if the slave survives a day or two, you know this passage, and you know how uncomfortable it is. If the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged because the slave is his money. That's how it's translated in the ESV. It just means his silver. He's exchangeable. He's a piece of property. That's that's re- That should make us all squirm when we read it in the Old Testament. And yet, it's not that hard to understand that the same thing Jesus is applying to the idea of divorce, which I'll talk more about in a moment. I'm not leaving the topic. The thing that he applies to adultery and divorce and all that stuff in a moment about the relationship between the husband and the wife is the same thing that we would say about uh, somebody who was, and again, I'm using air quotes, owned by another person in their culture. He's writing these things because they were already living in sin. They were already abusing other human beings and treating them as if they were their property. And so he gave them regulations about it. And I can... I can, I can surmise whatever I want about that. I can make whatever judgments I want about it. But the way Scripture talks about it is, and I'm using the Matthew 19 example, that God did give some laws simply because people needed to be reined in from what they were already doing. That's how corrupt we were, how bad we were. And so in Leviticus 25, by the way, and in this one, you can see the conundrum that's going on between the value that needs to be given to other persons so that you can't just buy and sell them and exchange them, and then the reality that they were doing that. So in Leviticus 25, the statement is, you may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have, who have been born in your land, and they can be your property. <laughs> you may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them. And and this is this is horrible. We we don't this is not we all know this is wrong. There shouldn't be anyone ever to claim to be a Christian or a believer in the very simple principles of holiness that God gives us throughout Scripture, who would read that passage and say, So see, having slaves isn't all that bad. Are you kidding? It's horrific. And there is no excuse for it, and we don't need to make an excuse for it so that we can go on saying, but I still believe the Bible. I believe every word of Scripture, but I'm not reading it like a fantasy or a myth. This is what actually happened, and these rules were established to stop people from doing things that were even more heinous that they were doing. And you can say, well, I just don't like that reading of it, but I've got the example that Jesus himself interprets a rule that way about divorce. So he goes on to say this, though, and this is what makes the point so that we should acknowledge this is not acceptable. So he says, you may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. That comes in Leviticus 25. 
You know what he says in Leviticus 19? I quote it all the time on these episodes. Not that you've ever listened to one before, and you may not listen to the rest of this one. But if you're in the middle of it right now and hanging in there, I've mentioned many times in other episodes that in Leviticus 19, he says very clearly that when somebody comes and lives among you as a stranger, you shall treat him exactly like one who is born among you. He's clear that for us to represent the holiness of God, we have to regard every other person as being of equal worth with the ones who were born among us. So here, when he's making that distinction, what am I supposed to do? Pretend that Leviticus 19 doesn't exist? Of course not. So I, I do, I have to look at them and go, well, which one seems to be normative? And which one seems to be written for the hardness of your hearts? It's not rocket science. There's nobody there because they're so hard-hearted that they were being so compassionate to strangers that God had to rein them in and say, well, only love them as much as you love your neighbor. That's not what's happening. So that one's not a passage I can limit using any method like that. This one makes perfect sense. And people are making deals and exchanging other human beings as if they're objects. And he starts reining them in from that. So going back to the Matthew 19 passage, what I'm saying is, in that passage, Jesus says, it's not about your wife being your piece of property. It's about the commitment you made to her. So fine, you give her a bill of divorcement and she can go out and be somebody else's property. That's not what you should be concerned about, he's saying to the Pharisees. What you should be concerned about is that from the beginning, God's intent was that you entered into a relationship with her that was mutual. There is a different kind of belonging going on in the husband-wife relationship than what the Pharisees wanted to acknowledge because in their tradition, they held the understanding that they got a wife and she belonged to them. That was where her, her whole identity and worth came to, came to pass. It was in belonging to him. And if he gave her a, a divorce, fine. She could go be somebody else's piece of property. It didn't affect me at all. And Jesus says, no, you, you've got this wrong. You entered into a different kind of belonging when you entered into a marriage. There is a different kind of belonging that he belongs to her as much as others had thought of her belonging to him. It became a reciprocal relationship. Uh, what I want to do is just look at the concept of belonging itself because there is an ambiguity built into belonging. And the ambiguity is built into whether we're looking at possession, ownership, and belonging as something that we're uh, ascribing to an object, you know, a thing that you own like you would own a pencil. Or if we're assigning that concept or that whole domain of discussion to another subject, you know, a person, another human being, it changes considerably when you talk about it in those terms. Part of it is just grammatical. We just recognize that there's an ambiguity of the terms in the language. But a part of it is grammatical only because it's conceptually ambiguous as well. And so what I want to do is just start to recognize where that comes, where that sense of belonging and our understanding of how to use the term and the concept uh, ought to inform the way we're thinking about our relationship with other people and how we belong to them or they belong to us or how we identify or, or uh, separate ourselves from them. And what, did, you know, what sparked this and what sparked this, this conversation today uh, was simply a, a friend talking with me about community. I spent a couple of hours with him over lunch. And uh, we were talking about what community is because I've spent so much time writing and talking and you know, all that preaching about uh, the nature of community and, and where we share responsibilities and we share obligations and we share duties and we also share some guilt and some burdens that we carry together the same way Daniel talks about it with Israel. I had that conversation on here as well in the past. And so in all those conversations about community, you know, the, uh, the other thing that we talk about is the individual. And so you've heard me talk about individualism and about communitarianism and how they relate to each other. Again, not trying to rehash all of that discussion. I'm saying in the conversation with this friend, uh, he just said, so how do you define community? He asked me that question. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't pull out some uh, stock uh, scholarly answer. First of all, I don't have any stock scholarly answers memorized. 
But I did think to myself, okay, well, well, how do I define community? Because I do define society as different from community. Groups are different from society and so on. There are different levels at which we could talk about any of those things. And so what he asked in asking about how I define a community is not, not a difficult concept in my mind. There are a couple of things that have to happen in a social space for us to see it as being a community. So I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a shared social space with somebody, and then I say, you know, I think this is a community. What is it that's present in that shared space that makes it a community? And I think it's, it's a couple of things, one of which is that we share some norms, some expectations, and, and, and I do mean by that some kind of values it doesn't mean that it has to be high-level moral or political values or something like that. They may be. They may not be. But we just have a shared set of norms, expectations, and values. But we also have a common sense of identity, meaning a common sense of belonging. So I'm not just uh, watching a group over there and I say, oh, that's part of my community. It has to be me being identified with that community. So there's a sense of belonging in and to that community for that conversation, for for this discussion of community to make any sense. So it's, uh, you know, the the shared space that I have, the shared social space that I have uh, with people who share with me norms, expectations, and values, and a sense of belonging to that community. And so, as I said a moment ago, I mean, the idea of belonging in the community is really similar to the idea of belonging or whatever happens in language with the genitive case, the way we talk about the genitive case. If you've done foreign languages, you know what I'm talking about, the way we use the word of a lot of times. And in English, it generally is the word of or a possessive case or something like that that we would associate with being in the genitive case or uh, being possessive. And so the difference is obvious, right? When I say my pencil, I'm dealing with an object. This is the pencil of me. It's my pencil. It's just an object. It's a thing that I own. There's no ambiguity necessary. That's sort of, I think it's sort of an underlying gag in the Toy Story movies, you know? Uh, This is my owner is sort of uh, making it reciprocal in a strange way because the kid's just thinking of having my toy. This is an object that I possess. And part of the reason the stories, and I'm just speculating, it's not like I'm a great student of the Toy Story movies. I remember seeing the first one. I think I saw the second one because I think it made me cry and that made me feel yucky. Uh, anyway, you get the idea. So, But what I remember of them, part of, the, part of the underlying, I say gag, I don't mean that, you know, part of the underlying shtick in the stories is that these objects... Uh, you know, in the, in the people's minds, this is just an object, just a toy that I have, it becomes so weighty, the narrative becomes so weighty because we start to feel the error of thinking of something that has personality as nothing more than a possession, than an object that we possess because these toys take on life, obviously, and they have personality and so on. And so uh, with, with an actual, the only reason those stories get so much you know, get such a strong foothold and wedge that emotion in there, not the only reason, but I mean one of the strong reasons, is because when you start out thinking of them as only an object and then you realize they're actually, they they carry personality and I actually care about them now, they they sort of force this awareness. Well, that force and uh, the openness that we have to it begins because we start out thinking, ah, these are just toys. They're just objects. And so, the objects really do, they really are just possessed by, they're just owned by us, that's fine. But we realize that can't be the case with my neighbor, for instance. So the question, who is my neighbor? I mean, think about that. The whole point of that question in the Good Samaritan story, after Jesus has answered the question, what's the great commandment? Love your neighbors yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? And the answer, the whole point of the story, I'm, again, I'm not trying to repeat that whole story right now, But the whole point of it is to get to the point of saying, well, it's whoever you love. It's whoever you care about. The act of belonging to the other person as their neighbor is that you love them, you serve them, that you sense toward them the same responsibility, obligation, burden, whatever it is, 
that you would hope that they sense toward you, which is why he makes it reciprocal. Who's my neighbor? And it turns out this guy's neighbor is the Samaritan who did the good to the person who fell on the roadway, right? So the act of belonging to the other person is loving them, serving them, caring about them, because belonging to another person, being in a relationship with another person is different than being in an ownership relation with an object. We don't get to treat other people like that. So let me put it in terms that we think of possessively. My child, when we give that one, right? My child, this child belongs to me. So when people are saying that in that strong sense as a parent, they're thinking only of parental rights. This is my child. I decide whether they get medical care or not. I decide whether they're going to this school or that school. I decide blah, blah, blah. But what we say would be equal to that is the parental obligation, not just parental rights. And this is the reason the the back and forth uh, argument would go the abusive parent saying, this is my child, I can spank them if I want to. I'm not saying spanking is abuse, I'm just saying. The reason some genuinely abusive parent, though, might say, this is my child, I can do what I want is the reason we would say back to that monster, but you're his parent. You belong to him as the person who was supposed to protect him. You were supposed to keep this child safe because you owe them. They're not a pencil that you own. They're a person. And your sense of belonging is only one direction. They belong to you. But that can never be the case in a personal relationship. It is never the case that one person owns the other. The belonging between human beings is inherently mutual. A king doesn't own his you know, subservience. He's obligated to represent them, to serve them, to lead them. This is the king that Jesus presents. So anyway, you get, you're starting, I, I hope I'm starting to be a little clearer on why it's so important that we not trivialize uh, the relationships that we have with each other because we read some passages in some mythological way. So if I say my spouse, you know, when you put a wedding ring on, does the wedding ring mean you belong like a slave to your spouse? Or does it mean I've made a commitment to this other person? You know, do they belong to you or do you belong to them? It's mutual. That's the whole point. It's not just I now have a slave. And or if I say my friend, even in English, we have a sense of this word's reciprocal nature. And I'm not saying I don't think English is a weak language. I don't mean it that way. But I mean, it's clear to us without having to go through any uh, great, uh, you know, uh, leaps that a friendship is a mutual relationship. And if it's not, you know, when you when you see someone who says, oh, he's my best friend, and you know that other person is just using them, you know they're not friends with them at all, you are inclined to say something to them. You know, I don't think that they are caring about you as much as you're caring about them. That is, if you care enough about them to tell them, you want to say that to them. So. Uh, belonging can, you know, it can lead in a lot of directions. So when, when it's related to an object again, it's about possession or ownership or control. The ball belongs to Matt. It's Matt's ball. That's fine. But it's when it's related to a subject, then it becomes about identity. It becomes about how we understand who we are. I belong to a church. It is therefore my church. I don't own the church. Neither does the church own me, but I have an identity in that community. We are the church. So I have an identity in that community, and their identity is partially in me, which is why meaningful membership has become such an issue in so many churches today, because the church isn't just an institution that happens to have people hanging on to the outside of it, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, and, you know, the church has an independent reputation. The church is those people. I know. The church are those people. I can't make it right. So anyway, the point is, the church, 
the the sense of belonging that we have goes in both of those directions. My, in the, both of those directions, I have an identity in the community, and their identity is partially in me. Same thing with a spouse. It doesn't mean if I so if I say my spouse, I'm not saying I own a spouse. My possession over there. I'm also not simply saying they own me. That's not the case. It's not the case that if a woman says, you know, I don't mind being owned, that it makes it okay. That doesn't make it okay. Human beings are not owned by each other. It's not that I own a spouse or that they own me. It is that we are mutually committed to each other, that our sense of belonging entails the mutuality of our arrangement. Any sense of ownership or possession is excluded by that mutuality. It's the difference between assigning price to an object or assigning dignity to a person. And again, we've, we've spoken about that topic before, so I won't rehash the whole thing, but it does make the point beautifully that when we have objects, they're interchangeable. So I have a pair of shoes. I could have another pair of shoes. I could have exactly the same kind of pair of shoes. And if I can break them in enough, I can make them exactly as valuable to me as those other shoes were, you know, discounting any sentimental value, which is personal and not objective. So back to the objective part of this, I can exchange those things. And because I can exchange them, I can assign a price to them. Well, I'll pay this much money for it. The fact that I'm willing to pay money for it means that I'm willing to assign a replaceable value to it. It's worth this much and not more than that because I could use that money to buy something else that would take its place and it has worth blah, blah, blah. Objects have price. Persons do not have price because no person can be replaced by another person. I didn't say tasks can't be replaced by other people who do the tasks. I didn't say your life can't move forward because one person has been taken out of your life. But the next person is not and should not be considered simply the same as the person who came before them. People who do that are weird, and you don't want to do that. Every person has their own distinct dignity. That's why they can't be replaced with money. That's why a person can't have a price. I'm saying all of that to you because the sense of ownership that some people want to bring to relationships on the basis of passages that are not about saying, that's how we ought to relate to each other, why she's just his money or this slave is just his money. That is an unacceptable way to read scripture and actually believe that it's talking about this real world where God does real things among real people to require us to measure up to real holiness. We ought to be different than that. And so in in the sense of a community then, belonging entails a couple of things. And, And it entails these things because of the equal sense of identity everyone holds by virtue of being in that community. And again, being, having an equal sense of identity in the community doesn't at all mean we all have the same role, uh, that we all have to, you know, it has to be egalitarian. Everybody has to do exactly the same thing. Doesn't mean any of that. But it means we do have an equal sense of belonging, an equal sense of the identity that we hold as members of that community. And because of that equal sense of identity, our obligations have to be extended equally. Our agreement in our obligations, our agreement that we give to everyone else in the community, whatever we expect from them. That's what makes a community a community. It's part of what does it. Oh, well, in this community, we don't play loud music late at night, you know, and so on. And our rights are the same way, that in a community, we have an awareness that we refrain from imposing on anyone else what we would expect not to be imposed on us. To be a part of a community is to come to a common understanding of what those things are. What is it we expect from others? Well, we'll give that to them as well. What is it we expect others to refrain from imposing on us? We'll refrain from imposing that on them as well. You know, this is how we live together in a community. So the point for our conversation, Daisy didn't think I could do this in one show, but I but I am. The point for this conversation is that we recognize at how many levels 
we're supposed to understand that we're part of a community. So, you know, without using the title of community, which would not be an appropriate title for these, but they really are these little micro communities that establish our lives. Without the title of community, it's recognizing that we're part of a family. You're not just a person who happened to biologically to be dumped into a family and you got to stay with them until you can make it on your own. You're blessed to be part of a family. You have belonging and identity in that family. And there needs to be mutuality and respect and obligations and understandings of the space that we give each other, all of that kind of stuff within a family. And they're different in different families. It's fine. But we love the belonging that we can find in a family. And if you don't have that, then you seek it in others like friends. And you find the closeness of friends. And how many times do we hear the expression, you know, this is my family. These who are surrounding me right here are my family. And they're your friends. And that's a, I think that's a beautiful, not just illustration, but realization of the type of community God expects us to be a part of in its tightest and smallest sense. And again, we wouldn't even use the word community for that. It's such a small uh, understanding of that social fabric that creates those relationships. But if I go beyond that, then we really do start using the word community. And the only reason we don't is because we sometimes don't mature into the process of recognizing how broad our community belonging is supposed to be. So for instance, I should recognize that I'm part of a community in my field. A field might be a profession or a discipline in academics, or uh, an expertise at doing a certain kind of thing, or a hobby, or whatever. I mean, with the astrophotography that I do, there is a strong sense of community among astrophotographers, and they're all over the world. And I have to admit, there's a particular astrophotographer who's in Iraq, and his first of all, his astrophotography is, I'm saying this, I didn't mean this as a pun, but it was already halfway out out of this world. I mean, it is unbelievable. Uh, he's really good. But but my point is, I, I came to be a follower of his astrophotography, always read the stuff that he wrote, always just admired the photographs he was taking, and then came all the protests and, and different kinds of just sort of catastrophic injustices, especially against women that were taking place in his country. And he started posting about those as well. And suddenly, I started caring about some of the things he was writing about because... We were in the same community of astrophotographers, which is a totally different thing. But in your field, you're going to have a community. You share some sense of obligation and responsibilities, but also some rights and privileges because you're part of that community. You know what people call professional courtesy is a recognition of a sense of community and belonging that you have, lawyers have with each other, or law enforcement officers have with each other, and so on. Those are part of a community. And this is good. I'm not criticizing it at all. There's a sense of mutuality and respect, belonging, identity, all of those things that are associated with being a part of a community like that. We're part of a community in a village or a city or a region, whatever it is. And in fact, probably in all three of those layers. I'm also a Dallasite. Ah, it just broke my dad's heart when that became true because he was a Tarrant County guy and we were Arlington people, and I still am. I still care about the Arlington community because I belong to that community too, believe it or not. And, and that's for those of you in Arlington who say, nope, you abandoned us, you went to Dallas, we don't welcome you back. Please let me back. I care about our community relationship. Anyway, and the region in general. I'm also a part of a community, and you are too, that's your demographic. You, you just are. You get into a setting where you recognize someone else who fits your demographic and you're going to be around each other and say, oh, yeah, I watched that show, too. Oh, I grew up with that. That was my hero, too, and so on like that. Demographics unite people in a sense of shared, sometimes suffering, sometimes advantage. But it's a sense of belonging and identity that goes with it. Your nation state is a part of your community, like it or not. When we And, and I, I love it. The fact that we stand up at the beginning of some sporting events and sing the Star-Spangled Banner together or recognize it together is a statement that we believe we are a community. Even if we have wildly divergent views on everything else, we share this love for this country and its history and our desire for it to be better all the time. That is a sense of community in your nation state. 
We're in a sense, you, you should have a sense of community with everyone who speaks your language. And you get anywhere where no one speaks your language and find someone who does, and you will realize how tight the community is, even though it's billions of people who speak English. Oh, you, oh, you speak English. You're my best friend now because I can speak your language and so on. Or Spanish or whatever language it is. You are inherently a part of that community. And then finally, and you can hear, I'm just making, these are just circles going outward from where we start. It's just me, but then it's my family, then it's my friends, then it's whatever discipline I'm in, and then it's whatever region I'm in, and then it's whatever demographic I'm a part of, and the nation state, and the language group, and ultimately, it's just humanity. Among all human beings, we are part of a community, and whether we want to acknowledge that or not, God expects us to acknowledge it. All of that simply means that the more I grow in my sense of identity and belonging, the more I grow in my understanding of who God made me, the greater will become my sense of empathy and privilege and also obligation to others. So so what I'm leaving us with today is just this instruction, that we learn to love our neighbors and that we eventually, and you know what I mean by that, as ourselves, that we learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we eventually learn to love even strangers living among us. And by the way, in this technologically empowered world, who isn't living among us? We're all around each other all the time. That we eventually learn to love even strangers living among us as we love ourselves. So that when we're hearing a story about Hamas going into Israel, or if we hear a story about Russians going into Ukraine, that we can't just turn our head. Ah, it doesn't, doesn't involve me. It's not going to affect oil prices. I don't care. What, what difference does it make to me? You say, well, it's just too much burden to carry. You're right. It is. That's why we collapse in prayer before God all of the time if we become the kind of believers he wants us to be. We belong to each other because we belong to the one who created each of us and expects us to act like he created all of us. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.